the ritual path of initiation into the Eleusinian Mysteries. Marilyn Keller, Ph.D. Marilyn Keller, Ph.D., Philosophy, Yale University, is a professor of philosophy and religion and past director of the Women's Spirituality MA and PhD program at the California Institute of Integral Studies. She is a philosopher, theologian, and the leading expert in the world on the Eleusinian mysteries of Demeter and Persephone. The Eleusinian mysteries of Demeter and Persephone are the oldest of the mysteries in Greece, sharing rituals and beliefs with Egypt, Crete, Anatolia, and Thrace, with roots deep in the Neolithic Age and the Agrarian Revolution. The mysteries at Eleusis, called Ta Musteria, lasted almost 2,000 years, from approximately 1450 BCE to 392 CE. The greater mysteries were celebrated in the early fall at Athens and Eleusis, in the middle of the Greek month Boadromion, roughly equivalent to our September, near the time of the autumnal equinox. The greater mysteries, as the Eleusinian mysteries were also called, were presided over by the mother goddess, but the story of both the mother and daughter constellates the center of the greater mysteries, serving as chrysalis and catalyst for the initiate's spiritual illumination and transformation. In these rites of initiation, initiates participated in a reenactment of the mythos or sacred story of Demeter and Persephone, their unwilling separation and joyful reunion. The myth and the rites are closely intertwined. Since the mythos of the Greek mother and daughter goddesses is relatively well known compared to the details of the rituals celebrated in their honor, I will focus here primarily on the details of the ritual. The ritual form was finely tuned over many centuries with the intent of manifesting an experience that itself was ineffable. The rites at Eleusis were considered essential to the survival of humanity, and it was said that, the life of the Greeks would be unlivable if they were prevented from properly observing the most sacred mysteries, which hold the whole human race together. Demeter's rites enshrined the natural laws of the birth, growth, death, and regeneration of humans, the crops, and all nature. As British classicist Jane Ellen Harrison explained it, these two things, food and children, were what humans chiefly sought to procure by the performance of magical rites for the regulation of the seasons. I first came to celebrate the Demeter-Persephone mythos by welcoming the arrival of spring in spiritual circles with women friends, and then later, too, with men. This myth also spoke to me powerfully of the loving bond shared by mother and daughter, a closeness that my own mother and I had enjoyed. And it also spoke to my sense of great loss when we were separated by her death. 
I wondered how the ancient Eleusinian mysteries had honored this mother-daughter bond, and how the ritual might bring me closer to an understanding of the role of the sacred feminine powers of the cosmos. I began to research and reenact these rites. I know others are interested in traversing the ritual path of the mysteries as well, which were open to all, young and old, male and female, slave and free. The power of a ritual is transmitted through a person's experiencing it. Classic scholar Karl Karenyi, guided by the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, explained the experience of an initiate of the Eleusinian mysteries by contrasting it with the experience of a person who views a tragedy performed in a theater. Aristotle investigated both what happened in the minds of the audience at a tragedy and the experience offered by the annually recurring venture of Eleusis. The spectator at the tragedy had no need to build up a state of concentration by ritual preparations. He had no need to fast, to drink the kukeon, communion drink, and to march in a procession. He did not attain a state of apoptea, of having seen by his own inner resources. The poet, the chorus, the actors created a vision the theama, spectacle, or him at the place designed for it, the teatron, theater. Without effort on his part, the spectator was transported into what he saw. What he saw and heard was made easy for him and became irresistibly his. He came to believe in it, but this belief was very different from that aroused by the epoptea, Epoptea, the vision of the mysteries. He, the spectator at the theater, entered into other people's sufferings, forgot himself, and, as Aristotle stressed, was purified. But in the mysteries, a purification, katharmos, had to take effect long before the apoptea. In contrast to the cathartic experience of watching a tragic drama, whereby, according to Aristotle, the spectator is purged of the negative emotions of fear and pity, an initiate of the mysteries would undergo physical, emotional, and spiritual cleansing in preparation for the main part of the ritual, a spiritual identification with the mother and daughter in their separation and suffering, and then joyful reunion a transformation from death to rebirth. Through her or his own inner spiritual desires and participation in the rites, the initiate was prepared to receive a seeing into the deepest mysteries of life. Initiates of the Eleusinian mysteries were forbidden by Athenian law, on penalty of death, from revealing the secrets of the mysteries. It was feared that revealing the secret rites would profane the mysteries. But these rites had originally been open to all. In the 6th century BCE, Herodotus, the father of Greek history, wrote, 
Every year, the Athenians celebrate a festival in honor of the mother and the maid, and anyone who wishes, from all Athens or elsewhere, may be initiated into the mysteries. Aristotle also underscored the openness of the rites when he explained about the Greek tragic playwright Aeschylus, 525-456 BCE, who lived in Eleusis. He did not know it was a secret, Aeschylus said of the mysteries. However, after the Persians attacked Greece in 490 and again in 480 BCE, foreigners who could not speak Greek were barred from the Eleusinian mysteries. In the first century BCE, Greek Sicilian historian and ethnographer Diodorus wrote of Demeter's mysteries on the beautiful island of Crete, that these remained open to all. Elsewhere, such rites are communicated in secret, but in Crete, in Gnosis, it had been the custom since time immemorial to speak of these ceremonies quite openly to all and, if anyone wished to learn of them, to conceal none of the things which elsewhere were imparted to the initiate under a vow of silence. In keeping with the openness of Demeter's rites in Crete rather than the secretiveness required by 5th century BCE Athens, I have chosen to present my own vision of the path of initiation into the ancient Eleusinian mysteries, based primarily on the ancient Greek sources. I understand that the rites changed over time and that no picture of the secret and ineffable rites can be definitive. While the rites were open to young and old, male and female, slave and free, initiates had to prepare for half a year or a year or more for initiation into the greater mysteries. Their instructions began with the rites of the Lesser Mysteries, which celebrated the arrival of spring in late February in the Mediterranean climate. The Lesser Mysteries included a preparatory ceremony for the Greater Mysteries, consisting of rites of atonement, for no one with unatoned blood guilt on their hands could be initiated into the Greater Mysteries. In the middle of the month prior to the beginning of the Greater Mysteries, approximately mid-August, special messengers or heralds, called spondophori, were sent from Athens and Eleusis across Greece to invite Demeter's worshippers to attend the festival of the Eleusinian Mysteries. At each city or village, the messengers would pour out libations of peace which proclaimed the cessation of warfare and signaled the beginning of the two-month-long sacred truce to which the diverse Hellenic populations consented in order to provide for safe passage for pilgrims traveling to and from the mysteries. The sequence of the ritual is important to the realization of its overall influence. It is also important to remember that each day begins in the evening after sunset, at first starlight. Nighttime began the new day with the possibilities of refreshing rest and revelatory dreams.
The day before day one, on the 14th of the month called Boadromion, in mid-September, the priestesses of Demeter and Persephone took the basket of sacred objects, Hyra, of the goddess from her temple in Eleusis to Athens and carried it on their heads along the sacred way, Eros Hados, that initiates themselves would soon traverse in their approach to the two goddesses. Along the way, they rested by a shrine of Demeter and Persephone near Demeter's sacred fig tree on the outskirts of Athens. The procession along the twelve miles of the Sacred Way, accompanied by an honor guard from Athens and villagers, would have arrived at Athens at the end of the day, no doubt being welcomed by celebrants already in the city. A priest of Demeter climbed up to the Acropolis to announce the arrival of Demeter's sacred objects and her entourage to the priestess of Athena. In this way, the relationship of these two goddesses and of their two once independent regions were accorded mutual respect. According to the 5th century CE lexicographer Esuchaos, the Agurmos was of the mysteries the first day. The initiates, dressed simply, assembled with their teachers in the Athenian agora, or marketplace, in front of the stoa the painted portico, together with thousands of celebrants who came from all around Greece and beyond. Very likely the blessings of Zeus and Athena, as well as of Demeter and Persephone, were invoked for the beginning of the festival. As part of the proclamation, Prohesis, of the Mysteries, the initiates, called Muste, were given a warning to refrain from initiation if one had unatoned killing on their hands. A vow of silence was required of the initiates not to reveal the experiences of the rites. I interpret the initiate's vow of silence also as a promise to remain silent during the days of initiation. Such a fast from speaking would have allowed the person to quiet the cognitive mind and to rest down into one's deeper mind and spiritual center. I experience this sacred silence as nourishing and spacious, an opportunity for deeper explorations into spirit. Initiates were also instructed to fast each day from dawn until sunset, following the example of Demeter who would neither eat nor drink while searching for her lost daughter. In the evenings, initiates could eat and drink, except for the traditionally forbidden foods, meat, fowl, red mullet fish, red wine, apples, pomegranates, and beans. Fasting, as we know, is a means of cleansing the body, a time when the body's cells and tissues dispel impurities. To conclude the first evening of ceremonies, the procession of priestesses, priests, initiates, and other celebrants would have paraded through the Agora up to the sacred precinct of Demeter in Athens, called the Eleusinion, between the Agora and the north slope of the Acropolis. There, Demeter's Hyra, her sacred things, would have been taken into her temple with singing and dancing.
On day two, initiates were heralded early in the morning with the call, Alladay, Mustay, to the sea, initiates. Initiates, with their teachers, families, and friends, paraded the handful of miles to the seashore south of Athens, to the Bay of Phaleron. This day was also called the Alasis, a day for banishment or letting go. Likely, the initiates saw their immersion in the sea as returning to the womb waters of Mother Earth. This process of physical cleansing and spiritual purification was further preparation for the initiates' pending experience of death and rebirth. In Greece, as elsewhere, the salt sea is believed to have healing properties. It was believed that the sea can wash clean all the foulness of mankind. During Greece's classical age, day three was called Hyrea Duro, or Bring Sacred Offerings. The official state ceremonies in Athens, on the evening following the day at the sea, included the sacrifice of a suckling pig by each initiate, as well as of other animals by officials, to be used for the evening's feast. The meaning of this sacrifice is not clear. Was it a sacrifice made from gratitude for the abundant gifts of the mother goddess? A symbolic gesture of purification from one's moral mistakes and spiritual failures? A prayer for the success of a new harvest? Perhaps all that and more. Because there is evidence that in earlier times Demeter preferred the gentler foods of fruit and grain to the blood sacrifice of animals, I expect there were also individual gift offerings of grains and fruits, singing and dancing, and gratitude offered to the two goddesses, as Demeter and Persephone were called. In addition, Tithes of the grain harvests were brought by official delegations from various city-states. In the latter part of the 5th century BCE, these offerings of first fruits, which at first were an offering of thanks to Demeter for the ending of famine, became required by the Athenian city-state during its war with Sparta to strengthen Athens' alliances and security. Demeter's priestess refused complicity with what, in effect, were war taxes. Day four was named Asclepia and Epidoria in honor of Asclepios and his healing center to the south at Epidorus. It was said that on this day, the cult of Asclepios and Hygieia joined the Eleusinian Mysteries rites in Athens. Evening rites of sacrifices were held at Demeter's Eleusinian Temple in Athens to honor Asclepius, god of healing, Hygieia, goddess of health, and Demeter and Persephone, who also were revered as healing deities. Special blessings were invoked for doctors and healers, and perhaps healing practices were offered at Demeter's Eleusinian Temple in Athens to all who came for them. Later that evening, initiates participated in a night watch. I think that probably they spent an all-night visit at the Asclepian precinct on the south slope of the Acropolis, 
using this time to focus on the healing of physical ailments, emotional distress, and spiritual limitations. The Temple of Asclepius was built near the enclosure of a sacred spring in a small cave. There was a dormitory, or abaton, for sleeping. As in the healing rites at the great healing center of Asclepius, Hygieia, and Apollo, on the Peloponnesus at Epidaurus, where dream incubation played an important role, this night too would have been a time for healing dreams. Since the ancients believed that illness stemmed from a person not being aligned with their divine destiny, those seeking healing would prepare for a night of dreaming by inviting a visitation of divine presence and purpose into their lives. Such a visitation in one's dreams could bring a healing of soul and body, providing the conditions for health and wealth, well-being and abundance. After a night of dreaming, initiates would tell their dream to an attendant of Asclepios or Hygieia, called Therapeutes, the source of our word for therapist. It was incumbent on the initiate to follow the divine guidance and to perform some action, as directed by the deity, in order for healing to be fulfilled. On day five, many thousands of exuberant celebrants joined the Pompeii, or grand procession from Athens to Eleusis, led by the priestesses of Demeter and Persephone carrying the basket of the goddess's sacred things, or Hyra. Celebrants left early in the morning from Athens' sacred gate at the northeast corner of the Agora and proceeded along the sacred way to Eleusis. The event places visited by the jubilant procession of celebrants were recorded by the 2nd century CE Greek author Pausanias, himself an initiate of the mysteries. Just outside the sacred gate at Athens, celebrants stopped at the shrine of the sacred sun, Iacos, who joined in leading the exuberant crowds. They paused at the river Kephesos, where youths offered a lock of hair, probably a coming-of-age ceremony. The procession rested at Daphne at the temple precinct of Apollo, Demeter, Persephone, and Athena, and then visited the nearby sanctuary of Aphrodite, where votive offerings could be made to the goddess of love, laughter, and beauty. At the boundary between Athens and Eleusis, beside the river and lakes called Retoi, initiates were met by descendants of Crocus, the first inhabitant there, who tied a saffron-yellow strand to the right wrist and left ankle of each initiate, which signaled their connection to the mother goddess. A high point of hilarity for the rites came just outside of Eleusis, when initiates crossed over the Bridge of Jests, mocked by masked jesters, led by a raucous old woman named Babo or Yambe. The procession finally arrived at Demeter's sanctuary with torches rejoicing. Day six began in the evening with a night-long revelry, the Panukis, with torchlit dancing by women around Calicaron, the well of beautiful dances near Demeter's temple at Eleusis. The revels included a kernophoria, 
a special dance led by women carrying first fruits of the harvest, using a ritual vessel worn on the head, called the kernos. They were joined in dancing by all the celebrants. Probably the offering of sacred bread, the polanus, was celebrated in front of Demeter's temple at Eleusis, the Telesterion. It was baked from the first fruits of the grain harvest of wheat from Demeter's sacred fields on the Rarian Plain, the most fertile land of Attica. After this night-long revel, the following morning and afternoon allowed time for rest and for further dedications or sacrifices for the two goddesses and other deities in the family of the Greek pantheon. At Eleusis there were shrines just outside of Demeter's temple precinct, for Artemis of the portals, and for Poseidon, lord of the sea, and perhaps also for Hecate, triple-aspected goddess of crossroads, and Triptolemus, the hero of Eleusis, said to have taken Demeter's gift of agriculture throughout the known world. Days seven and eight were called Mysterio Teodes Nucteas, the mystical nights or nights of the mysteries. Little is known with certainty of what happened during these culminating nights. The initiates, called Muste, together with their teachers, called Mystagogoi, entered Demeter's temple, her earthly home. Perhaps, like the Orphics, initiates needed a password taught them by the teacher of the mysteries, which allowed them entry to the Telesterion, the Hall of Completion. Inside Demeter's temple, fragrant with incense, there were things said, legomena, things enacted, dromena, and things seen, dagnomena. Probably the Homeric hymn to Demeter, or a similar hymn, was chanted by the priestess of Demeter and the Hierophant, who was said to have a most sweet voice. The priestesses and priests, along with initiates, reenacted portions of the sacred drama of the mother and daughter. A communion drink called kukion, made of boiled barley water and mint, was shared. A brass gong sounded. A great fire blazed forth inside the temple. The highest stage of initiation, the apopteia, a vision, a special state of seeing, was received. The Homeric hymn to Demeter from the Archaic Age, circa 700 to 600 BCE, is our primary source for the mythos which related the sacred drama of the mother and daughter's separation and reunion. It begins with the abduction of Demeter's daughter by Hades, according to the plan of Zeus. Lord Hades, with his deathless horses, seized her, unwilling, lamenting, screaming, calling for help from her father. The peaks of the mountains echoed, and the depths of the oceans rang with the immortal voice of the daughter, and her holy mother heard her. Anguish more bitter and cruel now struck the great heart of Demeter. Her rage against Zeus erupted, against the storm-clouded son of Kronos. She abandoned the assembly of gods and heights of Mount Olympus to live in human cities and fields, hiding her beauty 
for a long time. When Demeter, desolate over the loss of her daughter, withdrew her fertility from the earth, humans were faced with famine. Zeus, having lost the gift offerings from humans, suffered the diminishment of half his powers. According to the myth, after Demeter came to Eleusis, she was invited to the home of Kilios and Metanira, where she was asked to nurse their new son, Demophoon. The following key passage from the Homeric Hymn to Demeter can be read as indicating ritual actions which Demeter taught by her own example. And Demeter, bestower of seasons and bright gifts, would not sit down on the glistening chair, but waited unwilling, her beautiful eyes downcast, till thoughtful Yambe brought her a low bench and threw a silvery fleece over it. Sitting down, Demeter drew her veil across her lovely face with her hand and stayed there on the bench, grieving silently, not speaking to anyone by a single word or gesture, unsmiling, tasting neither food nor drink. She sat longing, consumed by desire for her finely adorned daughter, until thoughtful and wise Yambe joked with the holy lady with bawdy stories making her smile and laugh and have a gracious heart. And ever after, Yambe's ribald humor brought delight to the goddess's rites. Metanira brought her honey-sweet wine, but the divine lady refused it. For it does not accord with sacred custom to drink such wine at this time. Demeter asked to be given instead barley and water freshly boiled, mixed with soft penny royal, a mint-sweetened brew to end her fast. Metanira made the kukion as asked. She gave it to the lady to drink, and the great goddess Deo, Demeter, received it in affirmation of her rites. Reading this passage, we can also imagine the initiate sitting in the dark temple at Eleusis at the beginning of the Nights of the Mysteries, veiled, fasting, silent, identifying with Demeter in her grief and anger, missing her lost child, the loss of love and happiness, of life itself. After wise Yambe, Baobo, came to jest with the goddess and restored her to laughter and her generous nature, Demeter, her heart open again, agrees to care for the newborn son of Kelios and Metanira. Probably the ceremony of the adoption of the hearth child occurred at this point in the rite. Perhaps it was then that initiates received the special potion, the kukion, of boiled barley water, sweetened with penny royal mint, tasting like mother's milk. Perhaps now, each initiate was crowned with a chaplet of flowers and ribbons in confirmation of Demeter's adoption of each one of them. Finally, in order to regain the offerings of humans, Zeus ordered the return of Demeter's daughter, Persephone, to her. The high point of the ritual was the joyful reunion of the mother and daughter, following the daughter's sojourn and suffering in the underworld.
Persephone's return from the realm of the dead symbolized the rebirth of all life. Since initiates identified with the two goddesses, they too would experience the return of the suffering soul to its loving source. The Homeric poet writes of the reunion of the mother and daughter with these words. Then all day long, their hearts in communion, in this blessed presence, embracing and full of love, finally relinquishing sorrow, happy at long last together, held close in each other's arms, each receives joy from the other, each gives joy in return. Hecate comes near to embrace, with great love, holy Deo's daughter. Now to her, this elder queen will become priestess and devoted companion. Demeter and Persephone reunited were then joined by the loving and devoted grandmother, Hecate. This love among mother, daughter, and grandmother has rarely been given its full place in our own mythic memories, our literature, or religious rites in the West. Demeter then returned her fruitfulness to the world, and she went to the kings and princes of Eleusis and revealed her rights for all. In the 4th century BCE, the Athenian orator and initiate Isocrates wrote, Demeter bestowed on us two gifts, the greatest gifts of all. First, the fruits of the earth, thanks to which we have ceased to live the life of beasts, and second, the mysteries. And they who are initiated thereto have brighter hopes both for the end of their life and for all eternity. Demeter's agricultural rites included the laws, or thesmoi, by which crops were successfully cultivated. Demeter's bestowing the gift of grain to humanity was depicted in a great marble relief which must have stood inside the Telesterion temple of Demeter placing a stalk of ripe wheat into the hand of young Triptolemus, a prince of Eleusis, the hero of the goddess who spread her gift to the known world. Two important ritual elements not mentioned in the Homeric hymn to Demeter were a sacred marriage and the birth of a holy son. These elements may have been added at a later point, perhaps during the early Christian era. However, these two sacred events would have been in keeping with the rites of the mother-daughter goddesses in Greece, in ancient Crete and elsewhere, which were enacted to magically induce the procreation of the crops and the earth. Perhaps there was a Heros Gamos, sacred marriage of Demeter, embodied by her priestess and the Hierophant, inside the Anocteron. The stone enclosed shrine inside the temple to invoke the fertility of all life. According to Homer, there was a sacred union of Demeter and the hero god Yason in Crete. So too fair-haired Demeter once in the spring did yield to love, and with Yasan lay in a new plowed field. 
Perhaps this was when the great fire burned so brilliantly in the temple atop the Anocteron. Perhaps sometime after this, the birth of a holy son was announced. The Christian commentator Hippolytus, 3rd century CE, wrote that the Hierophant proclaimed, Potnia, the great goddess, gave birth to a sacred boy, Brimo, Brimos. As initiates moved through a death-like experience to rebirth, they received a special vision. In the 5th century BCE, the Greek lyric poet Pindar wrote of this experience of the Eleusinian mysteries and those initiated who pass on to the Elysian fields. Near them blossoms a flower of perfect joy. Perfumes always hover above. From the frankincense strewn in the deep shining fire of the gods' altars. Happy is he, having seen these rites, for he knows the end of life and he knows its God-sent beginning. In the 4th century BCE, Plato alluded to the culmination of the Eleusinian Mysteries in the Symposium, where one received a vision into the vast sea of beauty all around. Plato also alluded to the Eleusinian Mysteries in the Phaedrus. But at that former time, they saw beauty shining in brightness when, with a blessed company, they saw the blessed sight and vision and were initiated into that which is rightly called the most blessed of mysteries, which we celebrated in a state of perfection when we were without experience of the evils which awaited us in the time to come, being permitted as initiates to the sight of perfect and simple and calm and happy apparitions, which we saw in the pure light. Beauty shone in brilliance among those visions. After the mysterious nighttime, daytime, and second nighttime within Demeter's temple, celebrants probably emerged from the temple at dawn and then walked to Demeter's fertile grain fields of the Rarian Plain to invoke the rebirth of the crops and nature, reciting the ritual formula that invoked the fertility of sky and earth. Hua! Rain, pour down, kua, conceive, give birth. What was the effect of these mysteries? In the Phaedo, Plato, like Pindar a century earlier, indicated the shared belief that those who were initiated would experience a good life after death. Those persons to whom we owe the institution of the mystery rites are not to be despised, inasmuch as they have in fact long ago hinted at the truth by declaring that all such as arrive in Hades, purified and initiated, shall dwell with the gods. Cicero, the first century BCE Roman political leader and author, initiated at Eleusis while a young man of 17 studying philosophy in Athens, also indicated that a shared belief in a better life on earth and hope for an afterlife was imparted to him during his initiation. Among the many excellent and indeed divine institutions which Athens has brought forth and contributed to human life, 
none, in my opinion, is better than the mysteries. We have been given a reason not only to live in joy, but also to die with better hope. The Greek philosopher and public official Themistios, a pagan and probable initiate of Demeter's mysteries during the 4th century CE, wrote an essay, On the Soul, which compared the experience of the soul at the moment of death to the experience of the Eleusinian mysteries. The soul at death has the same experience as those who are being initiated into great mysteries. At first, one wanders and wearily hurries to and fro and journeys with suspicion through the dark as one uninitiated. Then come all the terrors before the final initiation, shuddering, trembling, sweating, amazement. Then, one is struck with a marvelous light. One is received into pure regions and meadows, with voices and dances and the majesty of holy sounds and shapes. Among these, he who has fulfilled initiation wanders free, and released and bearing his crown, joins in the divine communion and consorts with pure and holy men. Day nine was called both Plemokoya, pourings of plenty, and Epistrophe, return. This day was a time for offering libations to the deities, to the ancestors, and it began the transition back to one's own home, family, community, and work, to the rest of one's life with a new way of seeing. Special ritual vessels called Plemokoya were used for pouring libations. Perhaps these were libations to the dead, libations for the ancestors. The Athenians called those who had died Demetrioi, the people of Demeter. For me, this is a time to remember the beloved dead, to pour libations to the memory of deceased family and friends. I revisit memories and feelings both positive and negative, recalling our relatedness, our truths, and love. Epistrophe implies recrossing the boundary between the liminal realm of sacred ritual to return to the more ordinary experiences of daily life. I also find this a good time to reflect upon what inside me has died and been left to the past, what new life has found rebirth inside, and on what the future can be, what will be my life's calling, how this can be brought more into harmony with divine purpose, more akin to the two goddesses and to the miraculous divinity of life. I ponder what it means to embody the teachings of the mysteries, know thee sauton, know thyself, and maiden agon, nothing in excess. In the Eleusinian mysteries of Demeter and Persephone, a person could experience the renewal of his or her humanity and also the renewal of their connection to divinity, nature, community, and the cosmos. As the rites concluded, the initiates returned home with a new vision of life, blessed by the mysterious 